Good morning. Thank you. So hard to follow the cuteness of kids. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing on in our study of missions in Christmas. <clears throat> the mission of Christmas has been the title of the message. I of the series, and the message title today is The Eyes of Faith. I want to read to you um, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20, and we will uh, go from there in discovering what it is the Lord wants us to see today. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, we just pray as we study your word today, you would shape something in our hearts that we would draw it out from the Christmas story, but also from the Antioch church, and that you would uh, um, move within our congregation hearts that will want to act in faith to serve you in Christ's name. Amen. I thought a good way to... Um, begin is to explain what I mean by eyes of faith. <clears throat> and I thought about an Old Testament story with the prophet Elisha. And in this story, there's a king who is fighting with the Israelites. But God's man, Elisha, he gets a word from the Lord and he, he tells the uh, uh, Israelites what's going on and he, he causes trouble basically for the military tactics of this king trying to fight with the Israelites. So he hears about this, and he says, we're going to go find this man. We're going to, find, we're going to take out Elisha, because he's giving essentially heavenly intel that is thwarting us. But every time they went to go get him, God would tell Elisha, and he would evade him. Well, eventually, Elisha ended up in a city where he got word, he got the army, and like through the night, they went there, where we're going to get there before he can escape. They surround the city. So they wake up in the morning, and this boy runs, and he's, he sees it, and he runs, and he wakes up Elisha. you got to come and look. And they saw something like this. They looked out, and around the city was an army surrounding. And, of course, the boy's worried, right? He says, he's, what, what are we going to do? What, what's going to happen? But Elisha wasn't worried because Elisha saw something that the boy could not. They were looking at it with two totally different eyes. Elisha could see God in it. God was letting him see it. He says, 
God's with us. What do you mean? And so right there in the story in 2 Kings 6, it says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And I don't know if he actually, you know, did this, but after that prayer, he looked out and he saw the angelic army that God had sent around the earthly army that was there to destroy them. It's a true story. And I love this artist's rendition because not only is it numerical, but they're like, they look giant, you know. <laughs> this fearsome angelic army, the, the Bible describes it, they had chariots of fire. Suddenly they look out, they see God, and how would that change the situation? Oh, God is in it. He's here. He's with us. And that's the way I want you to look at the message today. Eyes of faith mean you're looking at the scenario, the calling that God is giving you, and you're seeing it through God's eyes. What is God doing in this? Some people, they can't see it, but I want to call you to see it with eyes of faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews defines faith for us in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen, which means faith has an element of it where you can't see it, but you're going to believe it. Why? Because you're basing your belief upon who it is that's giving their assurance to you. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I am assured of my eternal salvation. Why? The faith I have is that God in His Word and what He has told me about this, I believe it. I can't see it yet, but it will happen. That's what faith is. And for you to see today, as we look at the Christmas story, and then we're going to look at the Antioch church through eyes of faith, something that God is doing. And just to remind you, the mission of Christmas, Matthew 1, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the mission of Christmas. This child that's coming will be a savior. And that's what we're doing through the series. We, we, we take a moment, the first part of our message, we're looking at the Christmas story. We're getting something out of it. There's, there's principles, truths that are there, uh, essential to the mission of Christmas, that this child that we celebrate at Christmas time became a savior of the world. Then we come over to midway through Acts, and we look at the Antioch church. Previously, on the Christmas of Mission, we looked at that, which was the church go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Acts begins to unfold. The church is birthed, born, it's new, and it grows immensely into a mega church, thousands of people, and yet it's stuck in Jerusalem. It can't get out of Jerusalem. It stays Jewish. Even though Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples of everybody, you're just primarily Jewish. And that was part of the problem of the church. And you get to Acts chapter 11, which is what we've been looking at. How does it break out of its Jewish identity and be what it was supposed to become? How long does it take a megachurch to accomplish the mission? It's stuck. And in Acts 11, we saw that people went out of the city because of persecution. And as they went along, they wouldn't talk to anybody unless they were Jewish until these ordinary people, no famous pastor, no famed evangelist, 
ordinary people who walk into the city of Antioch and begin to share their faith with people who are not Jewish. And that's been the essence of what we're talking about this, through this Christmas season. How did we accomplish the mission of this child will be a savior to the world, this Christ child over here? Now we're breaking out of Jewishness. Now we're starting to reach all people. And it says in Acts, it's in the Antioch church that they first used the name Christians. They were first called Christians there. And what are the truths embedded in this story that lead us to this? The mission of Christmas. And I've been saying it to you this way, how will God accomplish His mission? First sermon was God uses ordinary people. Out of a sea of humanity, Mary and Joseph, who were they? Ordinary people who walked into Antioch. How does He help them? He gives them agents of encouragement. He's going to put alongside them people who will encourage them, speak into them in such a way that they are empowered to accomplish the mission that God is giving them. Elizabeth to Mary, we looked at. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, He gave him to the church. He gave him to Paul to encourage. And today what we're going to add is so we can act in faith. Those first two things happen to lead us to a moment where you will act in faith. God uses ordinary people with agents of encouragement so we can act in faith. And we're, let's look at this. Let's look at these two stories. The first one is that we read out of Luke and talk about the eyes of faith then. The eyes of faith at Christmas. And here's the first thing I want to give you is that they see that the news is good. I'm just going to read it again in verse 10. As the angel of the Lord showed around them, they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he uses the word good news. Now, this is where we get the word gospel from. The word gospel, if you ever heard gospel of Jesus Christ, it literally means the good news, the euangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. What's the news? The news is that a child has been born. He's going to be a savior. He will save us from our sins. That's the news. It's good. And the first thing I want you to see in observing this is how the news came to them. Because we are not unfamiliar with this. You get news. You get your news. How do you get your news? I can remember growing up like clockwork when we were at my grandparents' house. When that evening news came on, dun, dun, dun. I could hear the, the, the intro music in my head and grandpa sat down every time and like the whole house, be quiet. Grandpa's watching the news. That's how he got his news. Tom Brokaw, whoever was on, you know. Today, maybe less so. I, we don't even have TV. We just got streaming in our house. That's it. We don't get our news that way. Maybe you just get your news by going on the internet. Maybe you got it on your phone. But in, in any way that you get it, it's, it's a variety of different ways that you get the news. How do you get it and how do you receive it is the thing to think about. I just was thinking through the, the story, the Christmas story, Joseph. How did he get the news? It was in a dream. An angel came to him in a dream. How about Mary? I think it's the most fascinating. Mary, just the angel appeared to her in reality right there, spatial. Uh, there it is. It's not a dream in my head. It was right there. That's how Mary came and told her the news. Elizabeth, neither of those two things. She 
becomes pregnant with a miracle baby because number one, she's barren. Number two, she's too old to have a child. As the child is grown into her, Mary comes into the house, has a greeting, shalom. As soon as the greeting hit her ears, we talked about this last week, she discerned. And what came out of her mouth? Who am I that the, the mother of my Lord should come to see me? She knew what was going on, how she got the news totally different. I put the Magi up there. I think it's, that's a fascinating one. When we studied the book of Daniel, we talked about how Daniel was living in Babylon. God gave him visions and dreams, many of which had to do with the future. One specifically talked about the coming of Christ, and it gave a timeline, this many years, days, and he's going to be here. And a lot of scholars think those Magi came across that. That's what started them. So it's like the Word of God that's kind of hidden in this region of the world that they come across. They begin to ascertain the dates. They're looking at, oh, the, the, the God leads them with this star. How they got the news, totally different. The shepherds we just looked at, a whole host of angels in the sky. I even put Herod there, and he is unique because he responds differently, right? But he, how does the news come to him? Somebody the Magi show up, what that looked like, how big of an entourage they had. They're always depicted as three guys riding camels, right? But they show up, we're looking for the new king that's been born. What? Uh, he heard the news secondhand from someone else. That's how he got the news. But here's what I want you to see is the shepherds received the news as good, and it moved them to action. Verse 15, look what it says in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And I like that word, let us, because this is what the gospel does. It creates lettuce people. It creates let us people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let us go over and see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. And you're going to find in the New Testament how many times the gospel creates let us people. Those words, let us, are quite common. They receive the news as good and it does something. Let us now respond. What should we do? Let's go see. Let us go see this thing. And that's how they respond. They go to see this. Now, let me go back to that list. What action were these people uh, uh, known for? Joseph, let us get married. Let us have the baby. Let us name the child in the way, because he's thinking divorce. No, so he responds. The gospel comes to him. He responds in a positive way, but it's a lettuce. It doesn't record it that way, but it is because it's him and Mary doing it. Mary, the same thing. Elizabeth, she responds in faith with words of encouragement. And we didn't say this last week, but Mary stayed with her for three months. That's pretty hospitable. You're going to stay with me. You and I, I'm going to encourage you. She responds in a positive way. The Magi, let us go and find this child. They respond by going on this big adventure, a trip. 
And then the shepherds let us go and see this thing we've been told. Now, Herod, I said, he responds differently. Let us go find this child and kill it. He responds, see, the news isn't good to him. The news to him is a threat. The news to him is you might lose your position. You might have to give it up, your influence, your power, whatever comes along with that, fame, any of that. You, you might have to give it over because there's really only one king. And so his response, it's not good news. Let us kill the baby. Now, in this um, section we read, I want to show you three other responses to the gospel. The gospel comes. It's good news. It creates responses. I've used, uh, as I read it, words that I pulled out. They stuck out to me. The first one is wondered. And the three words I give you, I studied this week. And I got to really study these words. What does it mean they, that they wondered? And when you get into the, to the definitions, this means it, it was a, tr- a transient emotion, actually. It says, uh, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So there's like this, um, this emotion of, what? There, this is exciting. A king has been born in our little town of Bethlehem. They're all wondering about this. It's like an emotion that is drawn up in them, except it's transient. The way the verb is, is put into the text the writer is telling you this is not something that is a lasting thing. It's emotion. It goes woohoo, and then later it's gone. But it's there. It's a response. The second response that I notice is treasured. This is Mary treasured all these things. And I looked at word of us thinking on all the wonderful things. And when we think about treasure, we think about something that's expensive and nice, gold that's in a chest, and what do we do with that? We're going to bury it so no one can take it, and maybe we create a map with a big red X, but that's what treasure is stored up, and it's always protected and safe. We put our valuables in a safe. We go, we put it in a bank or somewhere where it's protected, and she is burying within her treasure. She's putting it in here. What is it that she's putting in there? All these little scenes the angel that came to me, the angel that came to Joseph. Now these shepherds show up and all these people are wondering. There's this emotion. All these little dots, these punctiliar moments of her life are stored up inside of her. That's a response. And then the other response says, she pondered it all. And when I looked that word up, that was the most interesting word to me because pondering means putting it all together to see what it meant. In other words, Mary, not only did she treasure it, but she began to think about it in a way that was like, I got all these dots that I'm treasuring, and I need to draw lines to connect the dots to see what the big picture is. What does it mean? And I would encourage you to be like Mary, because many of us, we're like just the first word, moments of emotion but it's transient. And you must be grounded in a way that you connect those dots over a long period of time to see what it is that God is doing. You must see it with God's eyes. 
and you get to the end and you see, do you know what those dots put together mean? God is worthy of glory. It says at the very end, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the heart of it all, at the center of it all, the target is always God-centered. See, sometimes we look at that picture, look at the, the, the two grown adults there, Mary Joseph, I assume, right? And there's the little major, there's the little baby. But for many of us, take a selfie, cut and paste it and put your head right over that little manger because that's how most of us see life. We are very self-centered in what we do. We are glory seekers. We want our ears to hear how good we are, our accomplishments. We seek glory. And yet, when you connect the dots, if you really see it through God's eyes and what He's doing in the pictures of life, bring glory to Him. For children at Christmas, you could put the little child's face there. You got a kid in the house. What's he thinking about? What kind of present am I going to get? Christmas is about that. It's so easy to just insert ourselves in a way that we're the ones. We think about ourselves. We take pictures of ourselves. We post it. We talk about ourselves. We hold our opinions high. We fight with people because our opinions matter. And yet the reality is, at the heart of it all, it's the glory of God. And we sometimes need to get out of our own way. We need to get over ourselves and make sure that we are giving God the glory. That scene, that little scene, that's seeing it with eyes of faith. And I'm going to pause there, like I do every, we're going to come over to Antioch for a second and try to put those two dots together because essentially we're asking the question, how will God accomplish His mission? That child will become a savior. How does it go from a little baby being born, he's supposed to save the world from sins, to the first non-Jewish church where they're known as followers of that child, Christians, Acts chapter 11. And when I turn there, first thing I'm going to read, back up just a little bit, but it says, the Lord was with him, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, we talked about this last week, to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then it says this, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You see, they see the kingdom potential in this, this Antioch church. There's something going on here that is different. Over here, the Jewish church was stuck in its Jewish identity. Later, Jews travel to, Christian Jews travel to the Antioch church, and they begin to say, how come you're not acting more like us? You got to be circumcised. You can't really be a Christian unless you also are circumcised. They want to pull the entire world into their Jewish identity. And yet, Barnabas and these Antioch Christians see God doing something. It's like, don't you see the angel army out there? I can't see it. Pray. 
that God helps you to see it. Don't you see what's going on in the Antioch church? I can't see it. Pray that you see how God is moving there. You can see it through God's eyes and what He is doing. Now, I looked at some of these words and these descriptions because we've talked about being Spirit-filled already. It says Barnabas was full of uh, the Spirit. He was a man of faith, but it also said he was good. What does it mean by that, that he was good? And this word good, it means good in the sense of my giving myself to His kingdom, that which belongs or that's what, that which brings benefit to Jesus, rather than to my empire, that which adds to my church portfolio alone, not to God's wider kingdom. And there's something in that little statement that says that we are so tempted to work in a way that we're really building an empire that has my name on it. Sometimes in all the years that I pastored and all the various ministries I've been involved in, you come across people that they, they see a particular thing they're doing in the church is like that is their thing, their little kingdom within the big kingdom. And don't mess with my kingdom. And they fight for it. They, just like I said, we can uh, be too full of us, ourselves, hold our opinions high and fight. You can see that. The Jerusalem church in this story is going to be like that. What are you doing? You have to be like us. How, to see it through God's eyes, the Antioch Christians saw it, and Barnabas saw it. Good in the sense that there, this it benefits the kingdom. It benefits the kingdom, and that is a higher objective. That which brings benefit to Jesus. We're not to be adding to ourselves, are we? It's how will he accomplish the mission? Well, in the Antioch, the first thing is the people God pulled into it, these ordinary people, they saw, saw it through eyes of faith. They saw, they broke the barrier. They, people were not talking to Jews. They went and said the gospel for everyone. They began to talk. They saw it in a way that was different. Now, because of that, their move to action. I mean, it says in there, let me read to you, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, this is this part, the part of this to me that is amazing is what Barnabas does. Because Barnabas Think about, this is a cutting-edge church, and what do growing large churches that are on the edge, what kinds of things do you, what do you see in megachurches today? Pastors of megachurches, what are you going to do? Write a book. What are you going to do? Let's come up with our curriculum to share with the world so they can do it the way that we, a pastor who's serving in that is elevated. They became, become famous in our world today. But Barnabas, he's going to remember, Paul is God's tool to the Gentiles. This is the cutting-edge church right now. i got to go get him. I'm going to go get Paul to bring him here, God's tool to reach the Gentiles. Do you know where he finds him? It says he goes to Tarsus. Do you know why he's in Tarsus? He's in Tarsus because he's essentially under house arrest by the church. 
Because he was so eager, he went out and began to preach, and he caused problems. First time, he, first, his first attempt, he lands in a church, and he begins to preach. And they're so angry with him, they have to hide him in a basket and lower him out a window so he can escape. Otherwise, he could be killed. Not very successful, Paul, your first attempt at ministry. And then it's like, the next place he goes, he doesn't have great success either. He caused so much trouble, the church came, and it's like they censure him. Which I think is amazing that Paul submits to church leadership. They say, you go to Tarsus and remain there. He goes to Tarsus and he stays there. Remember, he's from there. Go back to your hometown and do your thing there. But leave us alone. He had a reputation for stirring the pot, causing trouble. Here's Barnabas. How are we going to make disciples of every nation when God's tool to reach the Gentiles is under house arrest? He can't reach the world if he can't go outside of his hometown. And he goes to there and he gets Paul and brings him, which I think in and of itself is also seeing it with faithful eyes, eyes of faith. Because look, here at this church, there have been times where we needed help and we went to try to hire people. And when we go through the process of hiring, I mean, this is what we do in the modern world. It's like we need someone that's coming out of a seminary or they've got church experience. Send us your resume. And we get a resume and we look it over and it might have their experience in ministry, their, their education. It has all that, right? Paul coming into Tarsus, the church. Hey, cutting edge church, we need a minister. Let's look at his resume. Whoa. Used to persecute the church. Killed Christians. Says he's turned the corner. Whoa. First church he was in, they had to run, they ran him out of town. Like he hid in a basket. I mean, look at his resume. They're seen as a, a, a troublemaker, and yet they, but they're, they're seeing it through God's eyes. The testimony of Barnabas to say what happened to him on the Damascus road was real. And what he is told by God is that he is my tool to reach the Gentiles. And this is a breakout church, Gentile church. I'm going to get him and I'm going to bring him there. Because, why? Because they're seeing it with eyes of faith. And I put there, in the single act of taking in Paul, Antioch propelled itself from a church of local status to one of international reputation. Their act of faith is going to just catapult their mission identity as a church. They see it, they see the kingdom potential, they move us to action, which we saw in the Christmas story as well, both the church to accept Paul, primarily Barnabas to go get him, and then thirdly, I put here, they let God's vision have priority. There's so many competing visions within churches sometimes, and yet you've got these two leaders, and they uh, are shaping a vision that comes from God. I mean, you remember when they first got there, there wasn't a Barnabas, definitely not a Paul. There wasn't a named pastor evangelist. And the, the ordinary people that are doing extraordinary things, when God brings in the leaders there, they begin to allow the vision of God to be shaped in the church in its direction. 
It says in verse 26, you can see them working. He brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And then it goes on to say, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, we, we see eyes of faith in the Christmas story. We see eyes of faith in the Antioch church. Now, what I want to do is apply it to us, eyes of faith here at Bayview. And the, I got two points on this. And the first one is this, you must be willing to sacrifice one's own reasonable interests for a higher cause. And I think it's strategic to use the word reasonable interests because everybody has some measure of, yeah, you have to sacrifice to get something done. Even if you're in sports, you got to sacrifice time to, to invest in your skills and your fitness. There's always some sacrifice in achievement, right? I'm talking about reasonable interests where you say, no, if God, just like in the very first message comes in, he's going to interrupt the plans you have. Part of that might be, I have to give that up. You want me to give that up? And I, I, I had some thoughts on this, just like, Mary, we got our wedding plans. You got to put it on pause, put a pin in it. Is that, is it, is marriage unreasonable? No. And yet there's a higher objective here. You're going to give birth to the Christ child. That's a bit higher. So put on pause your reasonable interests and let God's vision work. But let's go on from that. Outside, we move away from the Christmas story and the one peak into the youth life of Jesus is when He's in the temple. They've gone there for a festival. Joseph and Mary are on their way home. I don't, I don't even know how it happened. It doesn't tell us because today, parents, we can't even imagine like going on a trip and then halfway through the trip go, hey, where's our kid? It would never happen. However, I've lost, I lost Caleb at the airport once. We didn't even know he wasn't with us. We had so many people. We were in a group. And it was like an hour later, he came wandering around. Oh, Caleb, where you been? It can happen. But it's like, where's Jesus? They go back. He's in the temple. Why are you here? Don't you know I'll be in my father's house? Later, when he's famous and multitudes around him, Mary gets a message to him, hey, your family wants you to come home. Put this away. Don't you know I need to go about my father's business? Even when it comes to parenting, even when it comes to family life, there's a way in which sometimes there's a higher objective that God's calling you to where you might have to give up reasonable things that you would want. I want my family to be around all the time. And I'm going to be a parent. I'm going to sh- I know some parents that shape their kids' entire destiny. But maybe God's going to shape something different than what you have planned. But what about Mary standing there at the foot of that cross? And her son, she was told he's going to be a savior. And she's standing there, and she sees him dying brutally. And her own son looks at it, the disciple and tells him, take care of my mother. And he dies. That's not part of what she would ever plan. Certainly didn't, wasn't what she thought of when you came and said, I was giving birth to the new king. But she couldn't, you have to see it all through eyes of faith. There's something bigger going on. 
And how about Barnabas? What are his reasonable interests? Leadership of the church? I mean, look, it's the cutting-edge mega church in the world. Like I said, Barnabas, write a book. Go on a tour. I have gone to conferences and seen mega church pastors sitting there with a line of 500 people waiting to get their autograph for the book they just wrote. Barnabas, go do that. God's given you a higher platform to influence the world. And yet what he does is he comes over here and he gets Paul and he brings him back. And let me tell you something, Barnabas cannot compare to Paul standing next to him in any stature, spiritually, teaching-wise, pastoring. Paul is a colossus, and yet I'm going to go get him and I'm going to stand next to him. He had to give up something for that influence, because Paul's going to have a say. should be on the same page, but you know how church politics are. He had to give up position. Why? Because he was seeing the kingdom potential in it all, a higher objective than what he might want, something that was… It's not unreasonable to say, I, I, I'm qualified to lead this in this moment. So, eyes of faith at Bayview, you must be willing to sacrifice your one's own reasonable interests for a higher cause, and then secondly, you must accept that smaller acts of faith will lead you to greater acts of faith. This is how God grows us up in maturity. He asks you to put faith in things that might be foundational in, in the birth of your Christianity, and as you grow up and get older, the challenges can be bigger and harder, but He does more through you. And I was thinking about Mary, to go from giving birth to the Christ child to having to stand there to see that child die on the cross, that span of what God took her through in that journey. And then I would say that Barnabas as well, going to get Paul and the church accepting him, a big act of faith, it's not small, but at the same time, it was something God built on. You start with these acts of faith, and then down the road, God's going to put something on top of that. And what did He do in that Antioch church? I, bar I, I borrowed this from another pastor, the Colossus of Paul plus that Antioch church. What happened in that church that year that they spent together what that foundational year, what came out of the church? Number one, legitimate notoriety of having the most significant convert of the time. That gave a lot of power to the church to step forward and do things. Paul is there. Everyone knows Paul. And I've experienced this where you, you travel around to different churches. Sometimes you go into church and it's like, do you know who used to go to church here? someone of great spiritual stature, they're known. You know, they went to that church. Now, when I was in California, we often had people of great stature, not in a spiritual way. I can remember preaching and there was an NFL guy there. In my church it, that I attended, 
big mega church in San Diego, Junior Seau, there was a time famous linebacker for the Chargers would go to church there. And I remember Pastor Jeremiah had to get up and say, please don't ask him for an autograph. They're not here for that. But I'm talking about a, a pastor, a, a servant of God of that magnitude. Paul, he was in their church, and that led to other things. Number one, it extended Christianity's influence beyond the limits of Judaism. That's what God did with that church. Because Paul is the most significant person to fight against Judaism. The Judaizers were people who were trying to make all the Gentiles be like Jewish Christians. You cannot be a Christian if you're not circumcised, is what they would say. And Paul fought against that. And I would say to you that that is, they led the way in that in the same way that we see people doing that in other times of history. Number three, the canon of Scripture. You know how Paul would deal with things? He'd write a letter. I'm writing a letter to this church over in Galatia. And now people collect it and said, man, he's given us great stuff to deal with this Judaizer stuff. And they kept it and studied it and they taught his letter. And guess what? It became a book of the Bible. They collected that Paul wrote most of the New Testament. That's what came out of that church. The act of going and getting him and then bringing him in made them a leader in shaping the theology of the world and dealing with the heresies that were out there. Judaism, got to get rid of that. Now, here's I want to relate it to you because if you go down to my office, I've just been working on my library. Pastors have libraries. And somebody was in there recently and said, look at this section right here, just this square right here. It's all John Piper books. You know, and I'm proud of that. I love my John Piper books. John Piper, one of the leading pastors of the world. He's retired now. He's from Bethlehem Baptist. And anyone in ministry knows that. And it's kind of like, not it can't be the same because he's Paul, but it's similar in that Piper has been writing against things coming up in culture that the church needs. Now, Piper's books will not become the Bible, just so you know that, okay? But for Paul, it did. But you can go down here. I've got a book that's biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. Why would, why would John Piper write that? Because that's been an issue in our culture. It's a big, fat book. And Paul did that. And what did God do through the church? They brought Paul there, a teaching church that influences the world. You know there are churches that exist that have reputations like that. Now, just think about it. I'm going to say the name of a church, and I want you to think in your head, what are they known for? You ready? Hillsong Church. Worship. Everybody knows that. They have put out so much worship, they've affected all the churches in the world almost. That's Paul, but not worship. Teaching and, and theology and correcting and shaping. That's what Paul did. And based on his writings, he influenced Augustine. St. Augustine, who becomes a believer reading Paul's writings. And then he writes, Augustine writes, 
And then based upon Paul's writings and what Augustine wrote, Luther read those. And Martin Luther becomes a believer, and he, he leads the Protestant Reformation. And based upon what Paul wrote, that Augustine wrote, that, that Luther wrote, John Calvin. This is the greatest theological minds ever. It's like a domino. And you know where you trace it back to? The faith of the Antioch church to go break him out of Tarsus and bring him over here because they could see what God was doing. And then lastly, I put here, being ascending church, the influence was international and global. Missions is part of every church. It should be. We talk about our missionaries all the time, and what I would say to you is they're really the first one who did it in the way that God calls churches to do it. And the Antioch church became the model, the sending church and the supporting church of those who they send. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week, but what I would say to you is Think about these two things that I'm giving you for application. Number one, we see in the Christmas story how they saw with eyes of faith. We see in the Antioch church, they saw with eyes of faith. At baby church, the challenge is I want you to be willing to sacrifice aspects of your life for a higher cause. And understand that in doing so, smaller acts of faith are something God builds on in your life to bring about greater acts of faith. And you say, well, how do I start, pastor? Well, I'll just take you back to become a le- one of the lettuce people. Become one of the lettuce people. That, that's what happened with the shepherds. The shepherds, it's like, here's the gospel. Hey, that is good news. Now let us respond. Over 50 times in the New Testament, it's there. The church is communal and is des- described as interactions. And it's always, let us let us love one another. Let us pray for one another. Let us encourage one another. Let us serve one another, confess our sins to one another, uh, bear the burdens of one another, be humble towards one another. It is the backbone of your action. Think about how you can interact with the people in this room in ways that fulfill the lettuce commands and be lettuce people. You see, you cannot bear someone else's burdens without sacrificing something. And that goes back to the point that I made, that you have to sometimes give up what is a reasonable um, interest that I could have in order to make the time to carry somebody else's burden. You have to think through it that way. In the act of carving out the energy and time to be part of a community to love one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another. Those are small acts of faith that God grows greater maturity in you. And that's how we connect the dots. The bigger picture to see what it is that God is doing. God's going to use ordinary people. He's going to call you to something. And when He calls you to something, He's going to seed alongside of you encouragers who will empower you to be able to accomplish the mission so that we can act in faith.
Father, I just pray that this Christmas message tied into what we see, the picture of the Antioch church, that you would grow within us eyes that can see what you're doing in our church. Maybe it's to perceive what's going on in the life of someone who's sitting here. Like Elizabeth, you brought Mary to her. And then to make the kinds of sacrifices for things that are reasonable to have in her life. So that the time, the energy is there to practice the one another so we can be lettuce people. Thank you for the example of Mary and Joseph and Barnabas and Paul. And I pray that we would honor you by building on these smaller acts something that you can in the future utilize to do even bigger things through us. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of Christmas. And we lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we worship.